morning. The last time we were here together, it was snowing outside a lot, so it's nice to, although this week we also got a lot of snow, but today there's nothing coming down, thankfully. Let's see, make sure this stays for me. Okay. Um, it was nice last week. We got to hear uh, from Josh, the pastoral candidate, and got to see him. Um, it's funny, I uh, Googled him, and I found out that he lives just about like 10 or 15 minutes away from where my parents live, so very close um, proximity to them and that in the community of uh, lots of masters and master seminary folks over there. Um, that was interesting to be able to see that. You've been seeing my face now for six Sundays and probably wondering how long is this guy going to be here. Um, we, our plan is not to be here forever. We are praying and trying to figure out a way to get back to South Asia. I just want to give you a little update on that. Um, as we continue to wait for an answer to our status to be able to return there, we've um, found a, a, a possible way to go back through a business that's run by an American missionary in, in that country. And so that's, um, that's possible. It's through coffee. And we're praying about that, um, and so we'd appreciate your prayers, and we have to discuss a lot of this stuff with our teammates and our sending church, too. So we hope in the next few weeks to kind of ha- make a, at least a, a more aggressive push towards getting back and reapplying for visas. So just appreciate your prayers, because it would change things for us a bit in location where we live, and um, maybe I'll be able to share a little bit uh, with you guys about that on another Sunday. But please just keep us in prayers as we think about our future and, and going back to our ho- our host country in South Asia. And um, you can ask me privately more on that. I try not to share publicly too many details about where we live just for security reasons. So let's uh, let's just pray again and, and as we focus our hearts on Titus and get going into that passage in uh, the end of chapter 1. Lord, we thank you for the book of Titus. I thank you that um, it's short, but it's also a personal letter where we can understand Paul's heart to um, Titus, who's supposed to help out the church that um, was struggling in Crete, Lord. And all churches go through struggles and um, good times and challenging times. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to be the kind of people that help one another in challenging times, that we seek good and godly leadership and good and godly followership, Lord, in in our churches, Lord. And may you use me today to share from your word what it is that is important for us to hear today. Amen. So two weeks ago, we started the book of Titus, and I just wanted to give a brief refresher just in a minute or two, because I know not everyone was here, and sometimes we don't even remember what we ate for dinner last night, so it might be helpful to refresh our minds. Um, So two weeks ago, we looked at this little book in the back of uh, the Bible, and it's a book that Paul had written to Titus, and they had a relationship, about a 15-year relationship, where they had done ministry together, and Titus was one of the guys who helped pretty much, maybe you could say even save the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church that was really on edge, really chaotic. There was a major conflict that was there. So Paul could trust Titus to clean up a mess, you could say, to help situations that were really difficult, 
And the main objective was that Paul told Titus, hey, you need to appoint elders in the churches. There's, there's an island called Crete right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, twice the size of Long Island, that had believers there for probably about 20 or 30 years. And there wasn't really any established good godly leadership there. And so Titus was supposed to do that. And that was obviously, we can imagine, not an easy job. Paul was, or Titus was supposed to find people who had good character as the main attribute of the, the leaders in the church. And they were supposed to be people who could teach the Bible well. So today we're going to look at verses 10 to 16 and then a few verses in chapter 2 to find out, okay, Titus is supposed to find these good godly men to lead the church, but what's going on in the church? What's the reason for this new job hire, so to speak? And we're going to try and unearth that and unpack that a little bit this morning. So if you look in verses 10 to 16, I'll start out by reading this verse. And what I'd like for you to do is, um, when I was underlining and preparing for the message, um, I thought to myself, what is Paul describing these people as? So you can take a look, like, what, what are the names he's specifically using to call these people out? And then what is it that they're doing to make such a mess of the church? So starting in verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and for that, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of, the Crete prof- one of Crete's own prophets has said it like this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So uh, you are here, you've looked through that scripture. Why don't we just say, what, what are the things Paul is calling these people? And this time, I'll give you permission, you can shout it out. What are the, what are the names Paul is using to describe these people? Glutton, okay. Liar. Rebellious. Mm -hmm. Insubordinate, yeah, depending on your translation. Rebellious, insubordinate people. Evil brutes. I'm sorry? Lazy, okay. All right, all of these things, good. You did a good job of describing these people. Now, these are not the kind of words and adjectives we want to use to describe the elders of the church, right? Which is the need what Paul is sending Titus to handle and to uh, deal with. Uh, No one said uh, the people of the circumcision group. So that's kind of the idea that these people were people who had a Jewish background. And from what we look at in history, it looks like Jews had been settled in in Crete for quite a a bit of time, at least a hundred years by this time. And wherever you have Jewish background believers, uh, you had unique challenges in the church, which we'll look at in a little bit. But there's this interesting saying that you probably have heard about Cretans. 
And it's in verse 12, we get kind of this famous saying that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And probably depending on where you are in the U.S. too, we have certain descriptions for people, right? What do they think about people in New York? What are you? People are, the New Yorkers are? Aggressive, right? Okay, usually uh, not wanting to avoid conflict would be one that I can think of, I've heard. Uh, People in California, what are they like? Relaxed, okay. My, I had an uncle who used to say this: the land of the fruits and the nuts. Um, usually, you have a little bit more openness, a more liberal approach to life. Unfortunately, but this was the approach that Paul was saying, and this saying about Cretans being liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. It's actually one that Cretans themselves would have been kind of like, yeah, we we kind of are, you know, just like you might say as a New Yorker, yeah, we might be aggressive. It, it's okay. It's just who we are. And this saying was from someone that was a respected Greek teacher. His name was Epimenides, and he lived 600 years prior. But he was a very popular teacher that his saying went this way. And Paul is using that to even show, hey, look, your own famous teacher describes you as this. And we all agree that our nature here is to be evil brutes, lazy gluttons, and liars. It was interesting that in in the island of Crete, there really, at the time when Epimenides made this statement, that there was really no wild beast. He was describing the people themselves as being wild beasts. So you get this kind of idea that, man, Paul is really, uh, Titus is really up for quite the challenge to find these uh, good godly leaders among these kind of people. Now, if you look back in verse 10 to 16 again, I'll give you a second. I want you to describe for me now what were they doing. So we know that Paul described these people as kind of uh, as the things you've said, liars, brutes, gluttons uh, of the circumcision group. But what were they doing that made what made the, the situation challenging? And go ahead. You can just shout it out as you're able to. OK, rejected the truth. Mm-hmm. Teaching things they should not teach. They were disrupting. What were they disrupting? The whole families, whole situations, right? And if churches were meeting in homes, we see the idea that not just families, they're disrupting churches, the whole group of people that are among there. Um, there was also, they were seeking financial gain, that somehow in their, de- their teaching or their demeanor with people, they were seeking to profit financially. And again, we kind of see these are not the kind of people that should be leading the church. Now, I want to step back and go a little bit to this idea of they were of the circumcision group because we have to get the context of the passage. And remember that if there were Jewish Uh, believing background, uh, Jewish background believers there, they would have had different struggles that you and I struggle with, right? Because the, the whole Jewish mindset was to fulfill the Mosaic law in order to become pure, that you have to follow all the rules. One time I was working with a guy in California, and he was a Jew, and he said, you know why us Jews are the best? And I thought about it, and I said, I really have no idea. Just go ahead, tell me why. He said, you know, we have the most laws, over 600 laws. 
And I kind of thought, gee, that would make, make me not very happy to have the most amount of laws because then I'd have to follow all those laws. And that's the whole point of the gospel, right? That it's impossible to follow all those laws. But if we looked at the situation there, the Jewish background believers, what kind of lies might they use in the church there? And some of them might be like this, that they would use these Jewish myths, these Old Testament stories about people following the law to the letter to become pure. And these kind of things were specifically related to food, to eating the the most pure food, the kosher food, or if now today in our context we've lived in a Muslim country, the most halal food, right? And if you don't eat that food, if you eat non-kosher or non-halal food, what does it do to you? The belief is that it makes you impure, and that basically Paul is arguing against that. No, look, these, these things, these laws that you think are making you impure, if you have that kind of mindset, then yes, you are impure, And those people who are teaching you that are corrupt in teaching you that because it's impossible for food or for other things outside the body to make you impure. This was something Jesus talked about in Mark 7 when he said that nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. For the food, it doesn't go into their heart, but into your stomach and then out of your body. And Jesus, in saying this, declared all foods clean. And so Paul is saying that, look, if you think food or other things outside the body make you impure, then you are. And that teaching is corrupt. And that's what these false teachers were telling them and trying to instill in them. And for us in 21st century America, it's kind of hard to imagine that because we don't live in that kind of world where we think that, oh, this food might make me impure or that food might make me pure. We think maybe this food might make me sick or not sick, but we don't have this kind of a cultural background. But Paul was saying that, look, this is, this is not good because it's only Jesus who saves us. It's only him who gives us that new and eternal life. Now, I was thinking about this in the context of Long Island today, and I was talking with Dave and Stephanie about um, what do people here view in um, religion, what's their religious views? And I know it's hard to just paint a general picture, but some things that I see and I heard from their mouths was that a lot of families have a desire to make their kids, kids pure through getting what? sprinkled, baptized as, a, as an infant, or then confirmed later on in life. And um, the, I didn't know this, but David was saying that that actually can cost quite a lot of money to do that. And you have to buy all the kind of dresses and the outfits to be able to baptize or confirm your child. And oftentimes, people try and do this, but the, it, it's, so, it's interesting and hypocritical because the mothers and fathers oftentimes aren't even walking with the Lord themselves, yet they feel they have to christen or confirm their child. And the, the belief behind it is that my kid is somehow, even as a baby, impure, and they need some sort of outside help, some sort of outside purification process. And we all know that doesn't happen because a baby getting purified then can grow up and become a horrible person. Um, and we see that that action, none, no actions 
outs that we try and do for ourselves or for others make us clean, make us pure. And that's why Paul is attacking this kind of an issue. He's bringing it back to the gospel and trying to show people that the only way that we can be pure and holy and righteous is by Jesus through the gospel. It's nothing that we can do. And Paul is saying that in the end of this description here, that these people in verse 16, that they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. And that's a powerful statement. If someone told me, hey, Michael, your life doesn't live up to the, the way that God wants you to, and your actions are showing you don't believe God, you deny him. This would be a powerful statement that Paul is saying against these people. They don't walk the talk, right? They talk well about how to be walking with God and how to be pure, but their whole actions are proof that they don't, deny, they don't follow the Lord. And I would say that in our own lives, in our own hearts, we're supposed to always examine ourselves. Man, am I walking? Am I following what I say I believe? Am I living a life that is pleasing to God? Or do I, would I be like this person that someone would look at me and say, well, by their actions, they obviously deny the Lord. And I I hope that would not be so for me or for you here. So if this problem was going on in the book of Titus or in Crete, what was Titus supposed to do? And this letter is obviously very authoritative. Uh, Titus is maybe supposed to act like a New Yorker, you might say, and deal directly with this conflict to be aggressive. If you look in verse 11 and verse 13, there's two uh, sentences that tell us what Titus was supposed to do. In verse 11, he says that these people need to be silenced. And then verse 13, therefore, rebuke them sharply. And this teaching, this this ongoing leadership dilemma there in the church needed to be addressed and needed to be addressed quickly and with sincerity. Titus, it doesn't say how he was supposed to do this, but this, this Greek word for silencing someone is that it's done almost in a debate format. And how do, you, um, how do you successfully win a debate or change people's minds? I would think that the goal would be that you come at it. Titus would be to come at his, with his reasonings from the scriptures in a clear way and from a life that's backed up by holiness and supposed to teach these people. And if you notice that a lot of times in life when we want to prove something, We don't care if people change. We almost say, well, I just need to tell them the truth. And then we we almost just think like it, it doesn't really matter if they change or not. But look at what Paul says in verse 13 in 13a. When Paul tells him to tells Titus to rebuke these people, he says the words so that and so that is kind of one of my favorite few words in the in the Bible because it tells you exactly what the intended consequence is supposed to be. So what does it say? Paul is or Titus is supposed to do this so that those who are rebuked would be sound in the faith and they won't pay attention to Jewish myths anymore or human commands. So his goal is that these people would be pure, that they wouldn't be cor- corrupted. 
Paul wants Titus to use this direct confrontation, but Titus is supposed to still do it, I think, in a spirit of love so that the, the, the challenging leaders there in the church don't just walk away, but they're actually changed. And I think of so much of what I see online and social media or even in uh, my gut reaction when dealing with arguments is to want to just tell it like it is and not care that people actually change. And I think what we're seeing from Paul and Titus's attitude towards these false or bad leaders is that there actually is a concern, is a care that, hey, the truth is upheld, but you also are changed. It's not just to, to act like, aha, we won, you know, we won this argument. You know, you guys are obviously false teachers. Get out of here. It was a desire to reconcile and to show love to one another and care. I just want to take a pause and uh, from the passage because I, but I, but I think it transitions into just how we deal with conflict. And I just want to share just a few words um, from from experience. Um, and you, many of you, have much more experience than I do in handling conflict. But I think the scriptures give us lots of ways to help us handle conflict. This is one example, right, of dealing directly with a conflict, but also still wanting to see true change and a loving, reconciled relationship. Um, There's all of us work with other people if you're working or you have family members or you're, you're around people. And so conflict will always happen in our lives. But as a believer, we want to be people who are peacemakers, who are trying to fix conflict to the extent that we can and see good, healthy relationships come out of that. Um, just a tool in the, the business world that I've come across, we've done this in our teams, in our, in our church planning team, is there's an instrument called the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument. And it's, a, it's an assessment. You pay maybe $15 or $20, and if you're working with a team or even the elders here at the church, you, what you do is you have everyone in your team take this assessment, and it gives you a score for how you naturally want to deal with conflict. Some people want to deal with conflict head on. Hey, you know, the bill in the, the restaurant was two ninety five, but your teammate says, Oh no, it was three dollars. You always have to be correct. If you're the you know, you're always dealing with conflict head on, you always have to be correct. No, 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 it wasn't three dollars, it was two ninety five. There's other people who avoid conflict or constantly want to accommodate. And these people have usually get squashed, and we need to be careful to protect those people. But anyways, these are two of the, the spectrums. There's some in the middle if you look at that, the Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument. Another material that you could uh, work through, which is uh, very biblically based, is through Ken Sandy's peacemaking material. Maybe you've gone through that yourself. Um, you can Google or look on Amazon for that, um, but it's worth going through a, with a group of people to help you in the various conflicts that we have in life. And just when we go through conflict, it's always good to pause in the midst of challenging situations or discussions to to be able to say, hey, I can't handle this conversation right now, or I need some time to regroup and rethink so I don't say things that will hurt the relationship beyond repair. Giving grace and forgiveness are are obviously things that the gospel teaches us with the goal, which I think we see here, of long-term reconciliation. 
and I've been in a situation where we've had a conflict even on the field within our church playing team. It was difficult. And for about two years, we went through conflict and then had a team breakup. So I know how challenging this is. I've learned through that, and I've, I think it's one of the best things I've personally gone through is conflict to see what my natural responses are and ways to do better in. In this situation here, Paul is calling Titus to directly address this problem. And there are times in life when we have to do that, but we should do it in love, just like we see Titus having that kind of heart attitude. So now as we look, I want to, we'll finish chapter one and look at a few verses in chapter two. I'm going to purposefully go out of order and just deal with the section that talks about the men. And then next week we'll talk about women and slaves and then the whole gospel. So pray for me. There's a lot of uh, unique material to work through for, for next week. Well, Paul is basically saying he's looking back to the previous bad leadership in the church and he's telling Titus, look, what you need to do, that the church is a mess, what you need to do is focus on teaching what's good for sound doctrine. Okay, sometimes that word doctrine can sound a little stuffy depending on your environment that you've been uh, discipled in or grown up in the faith. But doctrine should not be. It should always be tied to like applicable teaching. And that's what Paul is telling Titus here, that doctrine is supposed to be helpful to create healthy environments. The previous teachers were ones that created an unhealthy environment. They disrupted the whole house, the whole family. And when these verses are applied here in chapter 2 at verse 10, you see that the whole goal of this would be to live godly lives that make the teaching of God, excuse me, make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. And so when healthy teaching happens, when good teaching happens, people live godly lives that makes the gospel look attractive. And that's what we're seeing here. These are called the, the household rules. Paul will address, um, Titus is to address these people in three categories, the men, the women, and then the social economic issues of slavery there. And we see that multi-generational churches are what is, is the ideal here. And it's good that we have older people, middle-aged people, younger age, and even children in churches, right? This is what Paul is advocating and what we're seeing here as he's going to address the men. So let's go, uh, men particularly, I'd appreciate if you perk up and listen to what I have to say here because I think God has a special word to us. If you look back in the beginning of your Bible, we see that God created Adam and Eve. Adam was first in the creation narrative, and God told him that you are not to eat from the tree of the not to eat from the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told that to Eve. We don't, it's not said directly, but we see that when the serpent tempted Eve, particularly, Adam was there. But do you notice what happened in that story in Genesis 3? Eve looked at the fruit and she heard that it was good and saw that it looked delicious and thought, well, this can't be too bad. And she took it. And then she took that fruit and gave it directly to Adam. Now, if Adam had fulfilled his responsibility as a godly man, 
what would he have done? The moment the serpent was talking to her, I could have pictured a, a godly man, a man who was leading his family well, saying, Eve, what are you doing? Stop. We, we were told by God to not do that, to not go down that path and sin. But what is the picture you have here of Adam? Adam is kind of just watching this whole terrible thing unfold. He's watching, and he does not fulfill the responsibility that God has for him. And I think that this is a tremendous example and even analogy of sometimes what men struggle with. A lot of times, I think, just speaking as a guy, we have high ambitions to do well. We start off well in life. We think we're invisible. We want to do amazing things for the Lord and for humanity. And we oftentimes do well, but then we start to realize at some point in our life, usually your 30s and 40s, that I might not be able to do everything I hope to do. I struggle with things. I'm a weak person. I have personal tendencies that make me frail and imperfect. And even in our society today, we have what we almost accept a midlife crisis, which what, what, what happens in a midlife crisis? Essentially, usually men, they realize that they're not going to do all the things that they wanted to do, and therefore they almost go on some sort of a splurge to make themselves feel better. Well, it's okay that we realize that we're imperfect and frail. That's what we all are. But oftentimes men want to hide behind this. And in the church, we sometimes see that the older men get, the more they step back from church activities or not want to participate in them. And this goes for younger men, too. This is, I think, a temptation. Well, if I can't be the best, why try it all? And that's obviously not the the heart that Paul has and Titus has for these men. So let's look at what instructions Paul is telling Titus to give to the men. If you look in verse 2, we see that they were <clears throat> the men were supposed to be taught six different things, the older men particularly. First, they're to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. So I'll just walk through those six things. To be temperate was to be sober-minded, to not be drunk, but you're able to reason well. These kind of men were the men that looked at the book of Proverbs and sought out wisdom, right? And this takes hard work to understand what does it mean to be a wise person. They knew about themselves and how to interact with others and what was godly in situations versus not godly. And these are the type of people that do that. They are temperate or sober-minded. I like the next one particularly. It says they're worthy of respect, or some translations say that these men are dignified, that their their natural way of being with others elicits respect. And respect is different from popularity, right? We can do a lot of things as men to just want to be liked and to be um, to to make people think we're funny or enjoyable people, and that isn't necessarily bad. But we should never do that at the expense of losing respect for ourselves and for the Lord, right? That we are people who want to carry ourselves with dignity as image bearers of God. The next virtue is that they're self-controlled, and we see this word self-control is actually listed several times. It's to the older men the older women, and the younger men in particular. 
that there's, just think about what's the opposite of self-control is to basically just do whatever you want, whenever you want, and it doesn't matter if it hurts you or others. But the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit of the Spirit is that we are self-controlled. And today we hear about a lot of people who want to be just controlled by other things, other substances, alcohol, marijuana, it could be uh, pills, medicine, different kinds of medicine. But the mark of the believer and what older men are to strive to is to be self-controlled with the Spirit's help, right? Self-control takes discipline because your natural response is to want to hurt people who hurt you or do what just feels good. But Paul is saying to Titus, no, these older men, they need to still exercise self-control all the way to the grave, all the way till the day you last take your dying breath. If you looked just a little bit down in verse 11, I love what Paul is saying here is that the grace of God appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled lives. So God's grace is what teaches us to be self-controlled, right? If you act like, oh, God's grace isn't that good, or, you know, I don't really care too much about the Lord, well, those things are not, they're teaching you to do whatever you want with your life. But when you think about the Lord and all that he's done for you, you think, man, I can't just do what I want. I can't just do that because it doesn't please the Lord who made me. And I want to honor him. He also says that they are supposed to be sound in the faith. And to me, this carries the idea that older men are still desiring to know what the scriptures have to say. They're people who still have a, an appetite to understand how to live practically with the Lord. And to the older men, I want to just ask, are you still studying the word? Have you become lazy in your faith? Have you um, given more and more time in your daily life to entertainment than to knowing what it is that grows you truly with the Lord. And we're supposed to be sound in the faith. That means being solid. And I think younger people want to look up to older people too and to see that they've been through trials. They've been through difficult times in life and their faith wasn't shattered. This is kind of the the litmus test of a person who's older in the faith, that they're sound, they're, they're, they're rooted in the, the ground of faith with the Lord. The last two things are that they're loving and endure well. And that goes hand in hand with your faith. As you are strong in your faith, it helps you to love others, to be kind and gracious and loving towards others. And you've endured, like I mentioned, you've been through the trials of life and you didn't, you weren't shaken and you're still there and you're hanging on all the way until the end. And maybe you would look at this list and think, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay with those six qualities. I'm not perfect. None of us are, but I'm doing well. But for others, you might think, I, I, I'm doing okay with maybe one or two of those, but the other four or five, I'm not doing well. And I'd encourage you to really pray through this scripture and look at this. Man, what are the things that I need to do to live a godly life, which will leave a legacy behind me? We have example, most of the time in our society, I don't think we have, um, we're okay with older men becoming grouchy. 
uh, becoming like, uh, you know, Mr. Den- uh, Dennis the Menace's neighbor, Mr. Wilson, kind of this like bah humbug, impatient kind of person. So, you know, we, we kind of give credence that, oh, you know, he's just old. He, he says unhurtful things. And, you know, that's not what Paul is telling Titus. The old men in the church should not just be like those grouchy, old, nasty guys. They're supposed to be loving, godly, and kind. And the world is watching, and the church is watching you also. And so we want our older men to be people who are respectable and loving, and we want to give you that honor in the church, and we ask you to, to do that. And what's an older man? I didn't say this, but remember the, the, um, in the context, the life expectancy was quite young, you know, 45, 50 years old. So anybody over 40 would be considered an older man. So you might not have a full head of gray hair, but according to this context, if you're over 40, you would be in that category. Now, I'll skip a few verses because, like I said, I'll address the women next week. But in verse uh, 5, excuse me, verse 6, we see this kind of similar concept to the young men. Now, the young men, you only have one thing you need to do, but it doesn't mean that that's easy. The one thing that Paul wants you to know is that you are to be self-controlled. I talked a little bit about this, but I want to just be a little more specific for young men. So I love this verse in Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So you see a person who has no self-control has no boundaries. There's constant, you know, doing what they want to do and other people are doing what they want to to that person. And young people, young men in particular, usually have insatiable appetites for a lot of different things. And this is where we see them can get into trouble if they just follow what they want to do. Typically, we think about a common struggle with young men is lust, pornography. And these are things that we need to have small, safe groups where young men can feel the ability uh, to confess that sin and to be held in accountability and loving, godly relationships with young men in particular. And our culture wants to tell us, hey, do what you want to do, what's natural. It doesn't matter. You have urges to do something, do it, fulfill it. And that's the biggest danger that our freedom here poses to us. But the word to the young men is that you control yourself. You don't go doing what you just want to do because it feels good. Again, that idea of being disciplined, putting yourself under the gospel is what Paul wants Timothy to to um, to exhort them to do. And the last example here is, um, the last word we'll look at today is in 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, where Paul gives an instruction now to Titus. So he's given an instruction to the older men, the younger men, and now Titus himself. And now Titus, what he was supposed to do was to show himself to be a good example in everything. He was supposed to model what it meant to be a godly leader. And I think we should also carry that kind of same responsibility. Is my life, am I modeling to those younger than me and older than me a godly, a dignified life? And church leaders were supposed to be the ones especially doing it. If you look back in verses 10 to 16, we saw people who were not modeling what it meant to live godly lives. They didn't care about what they taught. They sought financially whatever it is that they could get from the people, and they were disrupting whole households. But 
the good teacher, like Titus was supposed to be, was supposed to be one who could teach the word of God. It says here that they're not supposed to use crass or vulgar speech, but to teach the Bible in a respectable way, to live with integrity, and that your message, which you spoke from your mouth, was also matching what it is that you do with your your hands, your your feet, your actions. And notice that in verse 8, if Titus does this, what's the result? Again, we have a so that statement here. The whole point is that so that, a Titus living a godly life, the whole point says that so that those who oppose you would not be ashamed because they have nothing, that they may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So if Titus lived a godly life, and he taught from what the scriptures said, anybody who talked bad about him would feel shame. The argument would be just against the scriptures itself, not against the leaders. But the bad leaders themselves, in verses 10 to 16, you could poke holes in them. Hey, that guy's, you know, leading your your church, and he's just interested in financial gain, and he's disrupting the whole church, right? That's easy to poke holes in that, but when the, you live a godly life, people can't so easily do that. They can argue against the message that we have to share, but not against us as people and ungodly men and women. And so as we wrap up our time today, I want you to think, you might not have, I hope you would not say that New Village has these kind of bad teachers that are listed here, people who want, you know, extra money for what they're doing or who are disrupting the whole church. I don't think that people could say that about the church here. But a lot of teaching happens indirectly, and we only see each other for a few hours on a Sunday. And so my question to you is, outside of church, your church environment, who is teaching you and what are they teaching you? Are they, are you, in, you know, listening to different things that influence you, whether it's media, radio, uh, political things, or, um, or YouTube videos, or TV shows, or an ungodly lifestyle that, that we don't know about here. But to put yourself in check, man, am I listening to things I shouldn't listen to? Is, are the influencers in my life leading me down a path that is against what God would have for me? As just to the men in the room, I wanted to ask you specifically to look at this next week, to look at this list of things and ask yourself, am I being temperate? Am I being worthy of respect? Am I self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love or endurance? And then if you're married, ask your wife what she thinks about how you're doing with that list. I'm sure she would have much more of a uh, uh, open answer maybe than you or I could sometimes so easily self-deceive ourselves. We don't want our guys in the church to be one thing on the Sunday morning and then something uh, totally opposite outside of church. We want you to be pleasing to the Lord wherever you're at in life. And I want to just close with the reading of the verses 11 and 12, which I read earlier that I think is giving us the impetus for living godly lives. It says that for the grace of God appeared that offered salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age.
And I'm, my question is, what is God's grace teaching you today? It's meant that we would live self-controlled and godly lives today. And let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word from uh, Paul to Titus, Lord. And I just stand humbled, Lord. I, I know I don't always live these things to be uh, temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and endurance. But I know that through a submitted life to you, we can begin to see that in our lives and see great victory. And so I pray for the men, particularly today, as we looked at some verses for, for us, Lord, would you help us men to not be like Adam, to not watch people walk in sin and be okay with it and then engage ourselves. Lord, help us to be self-controlled, to be people who want first and foremost to give ourselves to you for a life that honors you, Lord Jesus. Amen.